on today's show, we have Drew Spaventa, founder of the Spaventa Group. We're going to discuss what the Spaventa Group does and how they source and find the best deals in the market. Also, how to find the best trends and new industries in markets that return outsized returns. Drew, thank you for coming on today. Let's start by giving us an introduction about yourself. Yeah, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me. I know we've been uh, going back and forth for quite some time. So it's finally good that both our schedules uh, align to make this happen. But uh, yes, my name is Drew Spaventa. I am the founder and CEO of the Spaventa Group. Just to give a quick background of myself and how it led to the foundation or the formation rather of the Spaventa Group. Uh, I've been in finance for a better part of a decade. Uh, I've had roles as a stock trader, or should I say equities trader, uh, investment advisor. I was a uh, manager director of a multifamily office for quite some time. At that point, I decided to launch uh, what is called a pre-IPO firm uh, with another, a few business partners, Quantum Global Partners. Uh, from there, we didn't see eye to eye. We didn't have, they didn't share in the vision that I had for my firm. And from there, um, I gravitated towards the Spaventa Group. Uh, the Spaventa Group was originally formated as a consulting firm. And ever since then, I decided to actually broaden it to become investment managers for retail clients, predominantly accredited investors, which is an individual that has a net worth of $1 million or more. Uh, I would like to note that uh, I am a big fan of allowing access and democratizing private investments to everybody who's not an accredited investor, but anybody that is not an accredited investor out there, uh, blame the SEC for those rules. Uh, <laughs> that's just what we have to do. You no, know, it's interesting. You know, it's uh, so much uh, friction going on in the economy right now or in the world, you know, between the government and the rules and the people. I feel like uh, hopefully some benefit will come out of being able for everybody to have access over the next years. Yeah, I, I hope so, because there is a lot of opportunity. But, you know, the SEC says, hey, listen, you know, and, and mind you, that a lot of these opportunities are inherently more riskier than traditional investments, I guess. But that's also a loaded, you know, thing in itself, you know, is a private investment in a multi-billion dollar company like, you know, SpaceX or what we were just discussing, Kraken, inherently more riskier than a nano cap trading on the public markets. Uh, I would I would say no. So in the eyes of the SEC, apparently it is just for the mere fact that nano cap that's you know, worth $25 million trading at 80 cents is public and SpaceX and Kraken is not. So I, I just don't understand really how they come to the conclusion of what they decide is risky or not. You're probably more likely to get some of those YouTube abs pumping uh, those small caps, right? Yeah. You know, penny stock traders want to make, you know, want to become an instant millionaire by three o'clock this afternoon, you know, buy this and all that good stuff. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a shady underbelly of a world. So cool. I mean, so with this Vaventic group, what, uh, like kind of what prompted that start? Yeah. Well, what prompted that start was really, I had this approach. It was really two pronged. Number one, being in the investment world, I realized that how all these firms were punitive with their reps and their consultants and their investment advisors. And I really wanted to provide a firm that was friendly to the reps and provide them all these different avenues for them to build wealth. And that's, you know, that's really the honest uh, truth. Um, I'm looking for my, my workforce to build wealth from themselves and to be successful. You know, I'm all about motivation and conquering the world and everything like that. But in addition to that, we also have our clients and the clients are the most important aspect. And I really wanted to create a firm that would assist our clients in building wealth as well and not just treating them like a number. So I'm really all about white glove service over here. Uh, it's, it's a bigger pain than actually not caring and treating everybody just like they are a number. But so far the clients that we do have, and we do have several hundred clients already, and we do have eight figures at UM, we're anticipating breaching 100 million AUM by 2022, um, and that's really just switching business models over the last, you know, over a year. So we've we've been quite successful thus far. Uh, that being said, that the clients that we do have, we've had glowing reviews. Uh, we do everything in our power to isolate ourselves from the smaller competition that we do have, 
And yes, right now, our core business model is that late stage venture capital company type companies, those pre IPOs, if you will. But as I, Joe and I were discussing before you hit that record button, <laughs> yeah. uh, by 2022, we are branding ourselves as a full service alternative investment firm because we do want to start getting involved in real estate and digital assets. I think it'll be really cool to create and start offering digital assets tied to tangible assets. Uh, I think that'll be really cool and something exciting for our clients. So we are looking to uh, offer our clients investment opportunities for everything that are not traditional, like stocks, bonds, so on and so forth, especially with the market being extremely lofty as it is. Uh, not going to comment on where I think it's going to go or anything. Maybe we could you know, delve into that a little bit later, but you know, there, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why I think, you know, the private market is the place to be at this point in time. So when you mentioned full service, what are all, I guess, what are all the things that you got to do for your clients? Yeah. Well, I mean, right now we're, we're going to be launching a registered investment advisory firm um, next month to offer our clients hands-on uh, advisory services. So right now, what we do differently from everybody else is we don't just say, Hey, listen, this is what you're going to invest in. And then we get out them on the phone once every few months, we're constantly sending them monthly reports. Um, I'm actually going to be launching a quarterly uh, conference or video of myself. So our clients hear straight from the horse's mouth, what's happening with their investments, what's happening in the industry, what I see going on opportunities in the future. Um, in addition to that, we have offer our clients online access to all their holdings. So they don't have to just wait and call and everything like that. You could go directly on the website and be able to access and log in and see everything you own there in black and white. We have a, the new iteration of our website being launched next month. So it's going to be new and improved, sleeky, uh, sleeker, sexier. Uh, so things like that. White glove service, our clients get called at least worst case scenario once a month to get an update on their investments, even when nothing's going on. So when I made that comment that it's inherently more difficult because we have our, what we call consultants, if they're not, uh, you know, have their series 65, if they do, we could legally call them an investment advisor, but we have them reaching out to their entire book of business on a monthly basis, because we want our clients to realize that the Spaventa group is different and they don't get treated uh, like they do here, like they would elsewhere. And every time a Morgan Stanley or a Merrill Lynch, uh, you know, decides to only reach out to their clients twice a year or their turnover ratio goes over and over and over, it makes us look good when, you know, our consultants are reaching out to our clients uh, repeatedly. I mean, so how big is this team now and how do you see yourself expanding the service, all that? Yeah, we have roughly 30 individuals now. Uh, I have a couple of managing directors, uh, a chief administrative officer, a director of fund management. I'm pretty, my job is to run the, the vision of the firm and make incremental improvements. We have another seven individuals joining the team within the next three weeks. So by October, our workforce is gonna increase to 40. I think we're well on our way to eclipsing 100 by next year. So we're, we're growing pretty rapidly. So the one thing that we lack unfortunately is, you know, not everybody in the nation knows about us and it's going to take some time to build that type of reputation. But if I keep on doing podcasts with good looking guys like yourself, I mean, <laughs> we do, do, do so many of them and then it should, uh, it should start increasing our presence pretty, uh, pretty quickly. No, I agree there to the extent of good looking, but, um, yeah, I know, right. <laughs> there's so there's definitely, we do have interviews with, uh, even some startup projects that, I mean, they have something great, but just nobody knows about them. So I can't imagine like how many great companies are out there providing great services for their clients that people are just not aware of. And the only thing they're being pitched are these large institutional products when, you know, there's a lot better avenues for them all to go. Yeah. I mean, we're, we have a name for ourselves in this small niche market, 
but that's not good enough for me. You know, obviously I want to expand from there. I've done, you know, I've done a few podcasts already, one of which was with uh, Anderson Advisors run by an individual, Toby Mathis, who's one of my clients. Um, they're a top Forbes accounting firm in the nation. So he's, uh, I was actually supposed to go to Hawaii for a conference, but it got canceled because of the COVID uh, so that got pushed back till April. But yeah, I agree with you 100%. And it's one of those things too, what I've realized now that I've grown older and more experienced, uh, it really comes down to your network. You know, there's, there's a lot of good quality startups there that just need the resources to help their enterprise expand, but they don't have it because they don't have that network. You know, if you, I'm sure you would agree, a lot of these, you know, multi-billion dollar companies, if you look at the investor list and it's the same VC funds over and over and over again, you know, you have the Coastal Adventures and the Andreessen Horowitz, and then the later stage companies, you have the, the private equity juggernauts coming in, like the Sequoias of the world. Uh, and all these uh, entities have access to all these quality investments. Uh, I think there, there is a market for some enter, you know, some new entrants that could come in and help some of these smaller startups gain the resources that they need for scalability. Because the thing is, too, not every company has to become, you know, the next 20, 50 billion dollar enterprise. There's all these companies that get acquired for, excuse me, acquired for several hundred million that could make your investors a few hundred to a few thousand percent that you don't ever hear of unless you're tracking who gets acquired on a daily basis. But there, there is people need to need to know that there's a lot of money out there to be made. You just have to align yourself with quality, quality uh, management teams and quality startups or even quality late stage companies that are able to execute. So when you mention these large venture funds, uh, do you, how important are they to have in that capital stack when you're making investment? Or do you think a lot of the success on a lot of these unicorns is based on those funds being on that capital stack and influencing where that project goes? No, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it has a direct response. Obviously, when a company achieves and later in its life, it gets the resources that they need from some of the more experienced funds. But, you know, if you look at the coastals of the world, uh, they make a lot of different investments. So just by nature, you know, when you throw spaghetti at the wall, <laughs> something's going to stick. And then obviously nobody's looking at the failures. Everybody's looking at what's making money, right? Uh, that being said, I think the issue that we have right now, I mean, I have, you know, I put all these presentations together for some clients and, uh, you know, I did it for this, this conference that I was going in. But there's one that was put together that I really like by CBN uh, Insights. It shows the actual, and I have it up here, but it just has a... Uh, a little chart of you know 2010 to 2018 showing how many unicorns were created and you could literally see you know one or two companies per year and over the last five years it's all scattered so you could see the amount of unicorns that are occurring year over year is just getting larger and larger and larger and larger now some people think that it's reminiscent of the dot-com area in 99 2000s i personally don't think it's that bad I just think that technology has made it easier for a company to become a billion dollar startup. You know, back in the 80s, ABC company achieves a billion dollar company. Everybody in America knows it, right? They're popping <laughs> champagne on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, confetti's going, holy crap, we got a billion dollars. Now a company reaches a billion dollar valuation and you're sipping coffee like it's a Tuesday morning. Like, yeah, no big deal, right? <laughs> but I, I do think there, there is an issue here. And with, uh, especially in the secondary market, uh, in the secondary private market now, because now you have a lot of hedge funds coming in, wanting these secondary shares, and these other entities wanting these secondary shares. And what's happening, just like the public market, it's kind of overinflating. You know, Kraken, I could tell you right now, the from you know we, we typically buy stock either two ways in the private market, either direct from a, sell, a selling shareholder or via an SPV, okay? And I could tell you right now, the price that we had to pay for Kraken before offering it to our investors was a lot higher in April than it is now, because that, 
was the direct result of Coinbase's IPO. What does it happen? You know, it creates demand. I decided not to get involved with Kraken at that time. We were flat investors, uh, but now I'm getting back into Kraken because ever since then, the price retraced a little bit. Uh, and that's why we got in. We just thought it was a better price point. And to some, a few of our other competitors were able to offer it at a more attractive price point um, to our clients. So it's, it's one of those things that, yes, I think there is some lofty valuations out there. Uh, I think there is some irrational exuberance. I think there's a lot of people just clamoring for whatever availability it is there is for some of these secondaries, which poses an issue, in my opinion. But that's why it goes down to, well, listen, you, you can't just throw spaghetti at the wall or everything. I mean, obviously, you can raise money and make revenue for your firm and put money in your pocket, but it's, it's going to damage your reputation. So I find it better that if there's, you know, 20 companies for me to decide in, instead of telling my clients, listen, go, let's go through all 20 companies, let's cherry pick the ones that we really truly believe in after doing due diligence. We, you know, and we do all the due diligence that we need. We'll look at the fi whatever financials we could get our hands on. We will do sentiment analysis. We will look at different types of software to see what the direct employees of that company are, are saying. Uh, we do other things. I don't want to give too much away because I don't want anybody replicating our, you know, investigative uh you know, process, AKA Mr. Joe Robert, but no, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I just come to you. I, well, yeah, I, don't, right? I, don't, I don't want to do any work. Right. Yeah, right. Just, just come to us. But, but yeah, we really do what we can to really isolate ourselves. And uh, I see that guy walking. <laughs> that really looks good on a podcast, but uh, we do what we can. We, we feel that we go over and, up and beyond to really find the opportunities that we believe are going to make money unlike some of the other firms out there that, like I said, just throw spaghetti against the wall. Well, let's go kind of walk. I like to walk through the process a little bit, uh, you know, from the start to end. So if we have clients that are accredited and they come to you, I mean, what, what's initially, you, you kind of have a pre-screening, do you have a call with them? Kind of what's that onboarding process look like and how do you uh, get to understand what their criteria is? Yeah, well, we have, you know, just like any other business, we have different marketing procedures. Uh, we have consultants reaching out to uh, individuals that inquire about our services, individuals that have invested in the past. And then they have pretty much a welcome call, find out what they'd be interested in, and then call them back with uh, any opportunities that we have on hand. Uh, typically with certain uh, organizations, uh, I'll have one of my consultants do a Zoom video call. Uh, addressing whatever investment opportunity we have, the reasons why we're bullish. Uh, we'll even mention maybe some bearish scenarios just to really be transparent with the client. But then we tell the client, listen, this is the reason why we really believe in the company. And this is the reason why we're getting into the company. And then from there, you know, clients that are interested come on board. And then, um, yeah, it, it takes them from there. And then, like I said, we any company that we do want to go into, we make sure that we do a thorough analysis to realize that this is the company that we do want to invest in at this point in time. And what is it that allows you to get, uh, you know, once you onboard that client, what is it that you guys do that allows you to source those deals or have those relationships in place to get access to them? Well, originally with my other firm, I was lucky enough to, you know, be connected with a few individuals that were uh, involved in the secondary market. Uh, from there, uh, I, I started investing with them. So, so just to dial back a little bit, there's really two ways. We're either buying shares directly from a selling shareholder. And if that's the case, we have to wait for something called the ROFR period, which is right of first refusal, which gives the company the right for the first 30 days um, to exercise their right and actually take those shares away from me, which is never ideal, right? Uh, the second way, which is personally more ideal for me, is investing by uh, an SPV, another entity that was an early investor in the, that company now is offering interest in their fund to me, where I don't have to pay a carry fee or a management fee to that particular firm. So that's typically how I started in this business was investing via SPVs of three different contacts that I had. From there, our network has grown pretty robustly uh, that I've actually invested with a few and purchased from a few direct shareholders. Uh, ideally, 
uh, I'm actually one of the only few people that prefers to invest by an SPV. And that's because if I invest through an SPV, which is called short for a special purpose vehicle, I know that I have those shares. I don't have to wait and sign a contract and wait for the possibility of that company offering shares. Now there's some companies out there uh, I'll name one right now that's that's really on the top of my list to get, and that's Anderil. It's a military defense company. But from what I'm hearing from my network is a lot of their shares are getting rolled for quite a bit. So it's not something that I want to risk at this point. But there, there's sometimes that you just want a company real bad. You have to run that risk of getting a roll for it, which sucks because then I have to tell my clients, hey, listen, you know, if you want to invest in this, I either got to give your money back or we got to set, set idly by. So the, it, my network has grown. I do have access with a lot of the top companies out there. There's some of them that I don't want to, you know, I, I don't really want to invest in. But so far, you know, everything's been big growing well. Uh, so far for this year, just to cover it real quick. Uh, we've invested in uh, Plaid, the financial technology company. Right now, a major one that we're investing in is Kraken. Uh, we've also invested, invested in Scopely, which is a video game developer, uh, Zipline, which is a drone company, uh, eJust, which is a plant-based um, alternative meat uh, company making uh, eggs. Uh, we've also invested in Impossible Foods, which is pretty much the 800-pound gorilla of alternative meats in the private market right now, a direct competitor of Beyond Meat. And then we have a few other names that we are looking at. We're looking at Epic Games right now which I'm a major, major fan. I love the gaming industry. I think the gaming industry is going to be huge. It already is, but I think there's a lot of cool things in place for the future. Um, I love the space industry as well. We're uh, an investor in SpaceX. We invested in SpaceX by another SPV. Uh, and then, like I said, a few liquidity events that we've had so far. Uh, last year, we had Palantir, which is a big data company worth about 35 billion right now. Uh, and we just had liquidity events in both Airbnb and uh, SoFi. So it seems like you have a, a lot of different sectors that you guys cover. I mean, how do you kind of narrow in on the ones that you guys are going to get for the clients? Yeah, comedy. <laughs> uh, I know, right? I went from, you know, food technology to space to fintech to, to robots. So it's it's a combination. You know, I never like to stick to just the top down or the bottoms up approach. Um, I guess I call my style opportunistic, you know, always look for opportunity. You know, that's why I can't sleep at night because I just do so much research during the day. And then my research leads to some phone conversations. Uh, but, you know, in this world, everybody's selling somebody. Right. So I'm never going to get somebody on the phone about a particular investment and have them sound like, uh, you know, they're, you know, as my consultants will laugh at me, uh, Eeyore from uh, Winnie the Pooh. Everybody's going to sound like Tigger. Right. Everybody's going to say over and jubilant and how this is going to be the best investment. Yeah. Ever. But, you know, so, so to answer your question succinctly, yeah, we, we take a combination of uh, tops down and bottoms up. You know, tops down, we look at some investments with certain industries that we're really high on. And then within those industries, are there any companies that we could allocate to? Sometimes there aren't. You know, electric vehicles is one right now. You know, electric vehicles is a cool industry to invest in. Obviously, I, I do see that there's going to be a future in it. But number one, there's so many. Rivian just announced that they're going public at an $80 billion valuation. Uh, which I think is a little crazy. And obviously with Lordstown and Lucid, there's there's so, you know, uh, Nikola, uh, Nikola, I don't think it's generating any revenue right now. They're a $8 billion company, which is just absolute insanity. So there's certain situations where, although we like a particular industry, there has to be a company that's pretty good. And then on the flip side, there's just some companies that we're just looking at in a particular industry. And we're thinking that the company just has so much, uh, you know, is making so much headway that it's really impossible to not look at it. It really is. So it really is just a combination of knowing what's going on out there and looking at individual companies, certain industries, and then really just isolating uh, what we believe in. Ultimately, there has to be access to to to, to shares out there for us to get. Um, so if it is, and we just kind of put it aside and, and focus on something that we could get our hands on. 
I guess, I mean, what are like the top three criteria that you look for in these companies to kind of pass that underwriting? Well, when it comes to the late stage venture capital, we're not really big on startups as of yet. Uh, we're, we're anticipating getting into earlier stage ventures by the end of next year. So right now, uh, the late stage venture capital companies, in my opinion, offer that beautiful risk reward balance where it's not as risky as a company that's only had maybe a series A or B and is worth only a few hundred million. But there at least is, there should be where we're anticipating enough meat on the bone for you to get involved before the company goes possible IPO or possibly acquired that at least you can make more than you would have if you would have just waited for the company to be public. So that's one. We, we like to focus on the late stage venture company. So uh, typically we do like to see a multi-billion dollar valuation. All right. Typically we do like to see at least a series D funding round. Typically we want to see substantial year over year revenue growth. Uh, uh, like I said, we do some sentiment analysis because number one, we want to see what uh, retail investors, how retail investors think of it as an investment in addition to what consumers are saying about the product itself. If it is a consumer-based product, uh, tech industry, we've seen a lot of high valuations coming from enterprise tech companies. So the tech sector is a little bit different. Um, like I said, we kind of, we, we use something that we, we like to see what the employees of the company are saying about it. You know, sometimes it's it's best to see what the uh, the actual individuals that are inside are saying about that particular company. Uh, so we, we combine all these different analyses to really come down to what we heavily believe in. And then after that, it really comes down to intuition. It's, sure. it's, more, it's more art than science. You know, we're not we're not value investors. Right. We're growth investors. And growth really is an art more than a science. So we're hopeful that we're right more times than we're not. So far, we've had a lot of nice winners. Airbnb, we made a double on. Uh, Palantir, we made 150%. Um, so far, we made about 30, 40%. So not as a huge winner, uh, but we've had our duds. You know, Uber, I invested in, we broke even, which is not something you want to see. It wasn't a loss, but it was a break even. You don't want to see a break even after holding a year, sometimes a year and a half. Uh, Lyft, I think we only made 10%. Uh, but, but so far, and like, like I said, most of the companies that we have now, we're still waiting for a liquidity event, but we, we think we'll be able to walk away with a nice return for our clients. Uh, and then I'll also add, it's not all, you know, rainbows, gumdrops, and unicorns. You have your issues. Thankfully, I didn't get involved in WeWork. WeWork had a near $50 billion valuation, and now it's sitting at $8 billion. And one of those things, uh, you know, that I really heavily look at, whether it's a growth company or major blue chip that trades publicly, really comes down to management and culture. That's the first thing I always look at. And we work, you have the CEO, you know, selling shares of a company, his company, taking the profit, buying buildings to lease back to, to the company that he started. To me, that doesn't really show to me that the, the founder and CEO of WeWork had the best interest of shareholders at hand. And it seemed to me that he was possibly looking at, you know, a gimmick to enrich himself. So as soon as I see something like that, I'm thinking to myself, let's not, you know, go into it because, you know, in, in a world, you know, like I said, maybe five minutes ago, Joe, in a world where everybody's selling how their investment is the best, that this company is going to be the best thing, we have to really play devil's advocate and look for reasons not to invest in something and not just invest in something for the sake of having capital to invest. So I know that, so you check like Reddit and the Wall Street bets for this type of commentary or what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll check, uh, you know, Twitter and Reddit and blog articles and new article, news uh, articles. Wall Street bets is predominantly talking about, you know, public stocks and everything like that. But I mean, I, I'm, I'm very well aware of, even before the whole AMC debacle, uh, I knew Wall Street bets, uh, you know, existed. And that only goes to show you that, you know, you are what the market says you are. AMC had no business running up the way it was, but you know, they listen. It's um, and that's another thing I you know want to sign off about Wall Street bets and this whole attack against the hedge fund. 
uh, I don't really think it's a, an attack against the man. I think it's just a uh, people grouping up together to enrich themselves. That's that's all it comes down to. But hey, you do you, man. You know, go out and make the money. Do you think we'll see more of these uh, communities like this kind of come together and influence stock prices more in the future? It could be possible. It could be possible. I, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's really dominated by you know by a younger younger folks. You know, I think as folks start getting older and older and older, and then have families, um, you know, obviously they're always going to be susceptible to some type of some type of risk. But eventually, as you have families and start getting more responsible, you're going to be a little bit more conservative with the funds that you have. Um, so yeah, I could definitely see some more uh, you know different uh, chat rooms start up, and you know, for the retail investor. But even now, I mean, most of the flow in the market is dominated by institutional investors, and in my opinion, will always be dominated by institutional investors. I mean, the retail investor will always have a larger impact on, you know, a nano cap or a micro cap that trades, you know, under half a million, even a million dollar has under a million dollars of daily trading volume. I mean, let's be real. But for, you know, the retail investor to put a dent in what Apple, the trading average trading volume of like an Apple or a Microsoft, I don't know. Maybe I don't, I don't really see it happening. On these multi-billion-dollar companies, as an investor, like I'm always wondering, how, how do you kind of judge or make a pro forma of where that company is going in the future and what the performance is going to look like? Right. Well, that's the thing. You don't know, right? You could put all the models that you want together, you know, because I could say this. I know there was plenty of people or analysts that were pretty arrogant, saying that WeWork was going to be this huge hundred billion-dollar company. Talk about a wake-up call. But the answer is, you don't. You really don't. What we do want to see is what's going to create demand in the private market. Well, you look at certain other things like, all right, where's their revenue growing? If you have uh, access to their, even an inkling of their financials, you know, if they're, they're just little cookie cutter things that you could do. You know, if they're a, a software company that has a website, maybe a year ago, they had a hundred thousand visitors a month. Maybe this year they have a million visitors a month. There's certain other hints that could give you a, a little bit of a, you know, a light, a lens into the growth of that company. You know, how many contracts are they signed? Have they opened up in any regions? If there are, are there any regulatory things that are assisting them? You know, I mentioned Kraken. Kraken hasn't had a hack, which is something I love, or a security breach in nearly a decade. With seeing how the SEC is clamping down on the recent hack of Binance, the recent hack of Coinbase, that shows me that regulators might be might be a little bit more happier than crack with hack Kraken. Could, about, could I be wrong? Yeah, of course I can but I think I'm right in this particular instance. So that's something that I, I like about Kraken is that they're they're appeasing to the regulators and the fact that they're very, very uh, careful with making sure that their client's data, data is protected. Now, hopefully once this podcast is done, we don't see breaking news at four o'clock or 4.30, but uh, I don't think that's gonna happen. So it, it really all comes down to, and I tell my clients, listen, I hate saying this, but it's a fact. You have to be a realist, demand. When this company goes public, well, who's? I don't want to see SPACs as much SPACs anymore. I don't want to see as, as much direct listings with the investments that I make. I want to see a traditional investment. Uh, excuse me, a traditional IPO. I understand that you know, our clients are going to be locked in for six months, but I want to see major underwriters involved. I want to see underwriters, because underwriters want to make money. So I want to see underwriters involved. Okay, so there's incentive, incentive for them to see this uh, company have a successful IPO. I want to see extensive media coverage. I want to see institutions clamoring for demand for this company once it goes public. I want to see retail investors as an added bonus being bullish on this company. It comes down to demand, 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 demand. And of course, making sure that demand is sustained. 
six months after the company goes public. So at least my clients are profitable and there is profit to be taken once they get their shares. So when, after you identified all these deals uh, and you have the access, are you guys creating, do you have any internal fund that investors are part of? Or are they all SPVs for each deal or how is everything structured? Yeah, yeah that's actually a really good question. Uh, I break them off in a series. So I have an evergreen fund that I operate out of purely for my secondaries. Uh, and then obviously once I get involved in other things, I'll create different funds because obviously I'm not going to commingle anything. We're big on compliance, by the way. Not a lot of funds that I know of do compliance. I have quarterly compliance meetings uh, throughout my organization. And I keep itemized notes and you know, for the if and when the day comes that we get an audit by the SEC because it's inevitable, we could pass with glowing colors. So even things that we don't have to do, we take the initiative to do because number one, we want to create, uh, protect the firm and in my organization. And then obviously we want, to, we want to protect our client's interests. So we're very neurotic when it comes to compliance. All right. Uh, as far as the fund itself, it's structured, at, structured as an evergreen fund. It's open for strictly for us doing business. And then my clients will own a series within that fund. So every company that my clients invest in gets itemized on a series per, uh, you know, based on that series. So they'll own series within that fund. So nobody's ever owning, you know, uh, a fund that's diversified with interest in Kraken and Plaid and this company and this company. They're only specifically interest in the fund representative broken down by that series, which that series is based on whether, you know, SpaceX or Plaid or Kraken. So once there is a liquidity event, I could just break down that series and distribute the shares to my clients, uh, you know, based on whatever company they invest in. So how does, how does your group make money? Yeah, well, <laughs> we do everything for free. No, we, we, do, we, do, we charge the typical uh, industry standard where we front loaded uh, a percentage uh, and we charge a 20% carry fee. That's really the meat and potatoes that whatever our clients own the stock, whatever profits they are, they take, we take 20%. That's the industry standard. What we decided not to do to make us more competitive, in addition for us providing that white glove service, because we want our clients to stay with us for the long term. Uh, we don't charge a manage the two percent management fee. We don't charge you know the so called one to five percent due diligence fee. Uh, and there's another fee that I think is industry standard that we don't charge. We like to keep it cookie cutter. So when you own stock, you own it at that price, and then the only thing that you're going to be uh, you know charged, I guess is that carry fee once there is a liquidity event. However, what we are gonna start doing once that RIA is launched going into next month, uh, we're gonna be, because we want our clients to be members of our RIA, so there's added benefits and there are gonna be uh, price point, break points rather, with both the front load and the carry fee to incentivize our clients to become uh, RIA clients. Uh, I'm not gonna go into much detail yep. with that. Um, I'm gonna reserve that for anybody that wants to be a prospective client of our firm or existing clients but where we're going to be doing some exciting things with the RIA to get clients uh, onboarded into the RIA, which includes breakpoints in both the front load as well as the carry fee. So what's the typical average time frame that you're going to be in one deal? It ranges. It ranges. You know, we like to have an idea of when a company is going to go public based on certain circumstances, but it all depends. You know, SoFi was investing in for six months before they announced the uh, SPAC deal in January. Uh, Airbnb, I was investing in for six months before they went public in December. Uh, Impossible Foods, I started investing a year and a half ago. I'm still, they still haven't made any announcements, although there are rumors that they are looking to go public, especially with the initiation of a new S, excuse me, CFO. Uh, SpaceX, I invested in last summer. I'm still waiting. Uh, new investments this year, obviously nothing as of yet. Kraken apparently uh, isn't going public until 2022, 2023. So it all, Palantir was something that I held for another year and a half. So, so far I haven't ha had, haven't had to wait more than two years for a liquidity event, 
but I just want to reiterate that just because I have yet to have a situation that I haven't waited for more than two years does not mean that I won't have a situation where I have to wait for more than two years. And I'll follow that up with just because you have to wait, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't that's not technically a bad thing. As long as you walk away with a nice profit, that's all that matters. And, and maybe a better uh, taxable situation. Uh, yes, like we were discussing. We, we like that. Uh, Joe and I were discussing that because his clients are accredited investors as well. Uh, you want to hold more than a year because most of my clients are in high income brackets, which means that if you sell prior to a year, you get taxed at ordinary income. If you hold more than a year, you're getting taxed as capital gain, which right now is 15 to 20%. And as Joe and I discussed, where we're just hopeful that this new uh, you know, tax initiative does not go through because I'm not saying it would ruin us, it won't ruin us, but it's not going to be beneficial if my clients have to get taxed at ordinary income, whether they hold for a day or five years. It's just not beneficial. Well, what is the, I guess you mentioned a deal term and maybe not going public for a year or two. Are we seeing a lot of these companies stay private longer and how does that affect your exit? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, this whole market was created because companies were staying private longer. I mean, Palantir is a perfect example, formed in 2002, 2003. They just went public last year, right? So there's, as companies started staying private a lot longer so they could focus on, on and actually growing the enterprise, there was a need for selling shareholders. And just because a company, you know, there's a selling shareholder doesn't mean it's a, it's a bad company. You know, you have early employees that sell for various reasons, you know, to fund whatever it is, a kid's college, a purchase from here. If they have a few million dollars in stock, maybe they want to tap into a million dollars for liquidity, whatever it is. And then you have early uh, VC investors or angel investors that are ready up there a few thousand percent or whatever the number is, maybe want to sell their shares and go into the next early deal. So to, to answer your question, this whole market was created because companies were staying private a lot longer. And so they could focus on growing that enterprise. You know, Do you think it continues? I do. I think companies are going to stay. I don't think any company is going to rush to go public anytime soon. Uh, I think their companies are still going to stay private. I mean, if you look at Airbnb formed in 2008, went public last year. SoFi formed in 2013, went public uh, technically this year. So it seems that the number still is the company's been formed for at least five, seven years before it does go public, which I think is smart. I don't think any company should be rushing to go public just to go public and create that demand. You know, focus on growing the firm, create a return for your shareholders and your investors. And then, uh, you know, we take it from there. So yes, to answer your question, I think where this is the new trend for companies to stay private longer, but I foresee, as we were also discussing, some form of way to provide liquidity uh, in an illiquid, illiquid market, both for the, uh, the selling shareholders and investors that purchase these secondaries in the private market. I have so many uh, friends and, and listeners that are probably investors also on the real estate side, and they're kind of used to getting some type of cash flow off of that investment or seeing this nice pro forma the manager makes that kind of targets some type of return. Whether or not they hit that on the business plan, that could be a different story. Well, whenever they kind of come over to the venture side, I feel like one of the biggest hurdles or the two biggest hurdles is there's really not a pro forma or a projection being made what the person's going to make. And that uh, kind of maybe makes them question getting in. So do you guys have any benchmark that you try to beat or how do investors kind of ex- uh, get to understand what they're going to make on these different types of investments? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, we, we like to use a lot of comps uh, to, to kind of really pinpoint based on evaluation from where the company is. 
All right, if ABC company is valued at 10 billion right now, let's look at the comps, see what other companies are valued at that are going out of 50 billion. Would this justify achieving a similar comp? And what would justify it not, not achieving a similar comp or even exceeding that similar comp? That's really the best you could do as an aggressive growth investor. But that being said, I understand that real estate investors are used to, you know, seeing performa and the cash flows and everything, but it's a different beast. You know, real estate also over the course of you holding two, three years doesn't give you the opportunity to make the type of returns that you could investing in a private company. So it really is a different game. So the best way to do it is really take that portfolio approach, know a certain amount of funds that you're willing to allocate, take that type of risk to generate a higher return, and then leave the rest into, you know, your real estate investments. That's why I said too, one one asset class that we definitely have to get into is real estate because every single one of my investors are real estate investors, uh, but it's it's pretty wild. You know, we have a lot of real estate investors that are dipping their toe into the private market, but uh, and that's another reason why we're going to be getting into earlier stage venture capital, going into the close of 2022, which we're a good obviously year away from, because we do want those opportunities to even generate the potential for substantially higher uh, rewards opposed to the late stage VC funds that um, uh, excuse me, late stage VC firms that we're investing in now. Did you guys have like, uh, I guess like the, was it the Cambridge venture, uh, private yeah. equity index and everything. Yeah. We, do you guys try to beat, beat those or kind of, how do you guys judge your own performance or kind of have a conversation with your initial clients of what type of return you're trying to do within each deal? Well, we, we track it right now. The best we, we can do is track the S and P 500, which is roughly 13% cross that against the uh, Renaissance IPO index as well. Uh, that's what really we're looking to outperform. But even if we did, which we did with SoFi, I mean, 30, 40%, some of our clients are happy. Uh, we're not. We're, we're, we always look to, to hit it out of the park. We're always looking to make a double for every single thing that we get into. That's what we're hopeful. Sometimes we don't hit it. Um, thankfully, the last few times we have, uh, but that's the best way we could judge it, at least for now. And how about, you know, a brief touch on market sentiment, just inflated evaluations or possible recession? I mean, it's always a question. You know, are we at the top? What if this crashes tomorrow? Kind of how, how do you answer that to investors? Yeah, I mean, that's that's actually not as a difficult win thing that you would think, you know, what are we that market market top? What about recession? What about this? What about that? The bottom line is if the company's private and all of a sudden, you know, the world's almost coming to an end, they're not going to go public right now. They're going to wait for the opportune, most opportune moment. You know, last year we had the biggest economic uh, retracement in a century. Uh, our firm was just going through the roof during that time. Most of our clients accredited investors had that liquid cash sitting by to take advantage of an opportunity. So we were still investing in in companies last year when pretty much all of America and all the entire world was shut down. So we were still active. We were still doing business. Uh, The worst thing that we saw, like I just said, were companies postponing their IPO. Case in point, DoorDash and uh, Airbnb. You know, DoorDash filed, I think it was in February of last year, decided to put off their IPO, wound up going public in December. Airbnb, uh, I don't even know if they did file, I, I forget, but uh, they postponed their their IPO as well. Coincidentally, went public in December as well. So I think the worst case scenario that you would see, uh, number one, you're not really going to get volatility. Maybe there's going to be a, a lack of demand for a company's shares. But worst case scenario that I would see happening based on my experience from COVID itself and the fact that our economy will shut down is a company is just going to postpone for more attractive, you know, until a more, a more attractive time. You know, the, what, what I would say is when a company does decide to go public, uh, just make sure that no other major companies going public as well. You know, SpaceX is a big name. You know, if Impossible Foods goes public at the same time as SpaceX does, you know, maybe not saying it's a bad thing, but you always want to make sure that whatever investment that we have that does go public, they're the star. They're the, the limelight's completely on them. 
for to create up that demand. What do you see uh, kind of coming down the road when it comes to emerging trends or markets that people need to start looking at? Yeah, I mean, there's there's some fun ones. Me personally, um, I'm big on you know re- I like real estate. I'm not an expert at real estate per se. I have a few individuals that are on board that really want to start creating the you know the real estate funds that we're going to get into. Uh, real estate has always been no offense, boring to me, but I understand the allure. I was always the aggressive growth guy. I wanted to get in those fun companies. You know, I love the sexy story, but a story that actually performs. You know, not just getting into something because it has a nice story. That being said, uh, food technology is getting pretty big, you know, so we have our eye on that. Financial technology is an area that we absolutely love, but we already invested in two different financial technology companies. Three, if you want to really include Kraken with that. Space, I love space. It's going to pay, take some time to, to pay dividends, but space is an industry that we're paying uh, heavy, heavy, heavy attention to, rather. Uh, marijuana, marijuana, I think there's plenty of opportunity there, but obviously there are some legislative hurdles to overcome. Uh, we're seeing a big trend in psychedelics now. Uh, Atai Life Sciences, which is which is backed by Peter Thiel, went public a few months ago. Uh, we were not an investor in that. So it seems that psychedelics are becoming uh, huge as well. Um, so there's a lot of different emerging industries. One sector that I think is ripe to really, really explode and has not been getting a lot of love, like the typical tech sector, is life sciences itself, at least in the private market. I think we're kind of right there. You know, it's uh, I, wrote, I wrote an article a couple of years ago and I named it uh, – you know, science fiction is now reality. Invest in it. But it really is true. I think we're at really, really exciting times to be an investor. I think with all the technology that is uh, coming through and the fact that technology is advancing at a really, really, really rapid pace, everything that we used to see on Star Trek and we only dreamt about, it, it really is like here. It really is here. And I think uh, many, many new markets are being created now. So it really is an exciting time. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Like I was saying, life sciences, I think it's extremely right market that I, I really want to get into. Um, gaming, gaming is huge. Gaming is five times the size of the global box office market. And that's even before COVID hit, you know, Epic Games is a huge company. They're talking about building a metaverse. Facebook is experimenting <laughs> with a metaverse. You know, you have what is it? Sandbox, which is selling digital real estate via cryptocurrencies. Uh, everybody loves gaming. You know, everybody loves gaming. And I think gaming and interactive entertainment, I'll put it to you this way. I think those are the great defense companies and people will think I'm insane, but it doesn't matter what the hell the economy is doing. Everybody, there is always a want and a psychological need for entertainment. And being that nowadays, unfortunately, everybody has ADD because we're all glued to our phones. I think interactive entertainment is going to be huge. And a big part of that is gaming. So do you think, uh, do you think we're going to be able to live longer or what? <laughs> uh, I mean, according to Jeff Bezos, he just invested in a uh, startup that wants to keep them living forever. I think, uh, I think not in my lifetime, but I think eventually, uh, I mean, if you want me to take some crazy philosophical you know, thought that I am having is I think inevitably, and it's going to happen over the course of several hundred years or maybe a millennia. I think eventually, eventually we will evolve into a different species if you want to call me crazy. And the reason why I think that is we're already experimenting with uh, chips in our head, you know, matrix style to upload all this information. So eventually if we and we also have startups now that are creating, you know, human exoskeletons, 3d printed limbs that could connect to nerves. So we could, uh, you know, become pretty much uh, androids. Right. So if that's the case and where the human being uh, is starting to mold to with artificial intelligence and robotics and all these different uh, you know, things, I guess, uh, I, I think that 
maybe, maybe we could start morphing into a different species within the next few hundreds, hundred years or millennia. And if anybody wants to argue that fact, I mean, unless we get hit by another comet that wipes out our entire species, we're continuously evolving. We're just continuously evolving. I mean, like I said, if you think about where mankind, not just America, mankind itself, uh, technologically speaking, has advanced over the last hundred years from 1921 till now, it's absolutely remarkable. And even you think what's happened over the last 20 years, I mean, you know, what, what, what our phones could do now, right? Remember when the, the iPhone was launched in the mid 2000s, only 14 years ago, 15 years ago, right? And I didn't have computers in high school, man. I, I, it's yeah. like a couple years after. So it's like, wow, like, you know, a lot has happened. Right. You know how people watch movies now. No, nobody remembers, you know, the VCR tape. I was watching, uh, I don't watch a lot of TV, but there was, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was on Netflix. Uh, I don't know if you want to blur out Netflix unless they want to pay you, but uh, it was uh, it was a documentary about Blockbuster. And they were talking about, uh, you know, it was like a little flashback thing, a little retro flash- flashback of, remember how they used to find you if you didn't rewind the tape? And I thought to myself, oh crap, I remember that. Uh, yeah. Kids these days don't know how it is to rewind or sit there when you hear a song and you want to record it on your cassette and wait for the whole thing to be done and then press, uh, you know, stop and then have to rewind just to hear it. You know, and that was, you know, that advancement occurred over the last two decades. So just think what's going to happen over the next 10 years, next 20 years, next 30 years. We're already talking about mining asteroids in the 2030s. You know, we're already saying, you know, the uh, solar energy apparently is going to make up over half the energy that we get in America. That's what, you know, many different sources are saying. I don't think we're going to achieve it yet as of yet. But just think about how far we've come in the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and how we're going to be by the year 2050. I think we have so much opportunity ahead of us it's not even funny i think it, i think it's i think we're in a really exciting time not just be people but to definitely be investors well i mean i guess as an investor how does one stay on top of all these trends and really uh, be able to be plugged in because i feel like if you're not on top of the trends sometimes you don't make as good as investment decisions so how do you guys you know uh, monitor all this we uh, <laughs> have different various different uh, software and proprietary uh, pieces of uh, well, software, I guess, that we use to really just feed all our content. And we're just constantly monitoring everything. Myself, all the way down to my consultants and investment advisors, everybody's always on the same page, monitoring the same things. I have a research division that constantly monitors monitors all these trends, anything new. There's a ton of information out there. Anything that is any inkling that it might be intriguing, we write down and we have you know spreadsheets and everything like that, that we just constantly, constantly monitor. It takes a lot of bandwidth, but there and not everything sticks, right? It's just like a funnel. We have all this information coming in. A lot of it's BS. A lot of it's just nice to read because you have to read past the, you know, the hyperbole and the salesmanship or whatever article it is. But we're we're constantly looking at what could be the next big thing, what's growing now. And then ultimately, as far as the investor, yeah, it takes a lot of work. It's not easy. That's why you always want to, unless you don't want to do yourself because you're a busy individual, which 100% of clients are, you want to find a firm that you trust that's going to have your back and make those decisions for you and keep you educated, not just treat you like a number. And that's what my friend, this book at the group does. So if anybody's a credit investor that wants um, exposure to the private markets or any emerging technologies, uh, we are the firm to do it. And that's what we're really doing as a differentiator. Well, that's why we uh, reached out to you. 
Thank you <laughs> to, to get you on. Yeah. We've seen what you're doing and the uh, access to some of these uh, companies is very interesting for investors. And I think a lot more uh, people that I know are coming to the venture side and the equity side from real estate and just ultimately looking for other opportunities that may balance the portfolio or outperform on the real estate side. So it's, you know, I appreciate coming on and, and explaining that all to us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Maybe we could have a part two sometime. I agree. And so I guess we always have a final question though. What is the biggest thing that you have implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth? Mindset, man. Mindset. I'll, make this, I'll make this as simple as possible without really getting into it. But I grew up without my father around and my mom, I do not get along with her. All right. So I made that joke that I go by Drew because I was reminiscent of my mother calling me and <laughs> being in trouble, which is true. Yeah. But it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, my mother and I no longer speak and my father, you know, wherever he is. Uh, my mother, I grew up on welfare. So I know I'm blessed that I live in this country every single day because I, I've not been able to do what I have unless I live in America. Uh, so that being said, well, the reason why I say mindset is I grew up under the pretense with my mom, you know, always making the comments, you know, people with money, you can't afford that. You know, I remember being on welfare and having a shot by a list that New York state gave my mother because this is what she had to pick. And she was always victimizing herself. You know, why me? Why life? And even as a young kid, I said, well, listen, mom, you know, it seems that you're getting help from the state. Why don't you take a few classes to get a better job? Why don't you do this? And I'm not going to speak ill of my mom, but it really shaped who I am because, uh, you know, after being 35 years on welfare, she's still in the same place that she is because she never take the initiative to, to better herself, unfortunately. So I never had that type of guidance to really show me the way. And it's unfortunate because I think there's a lot of good kids out there that just all they need is guidance to have that opportunity to make something up for themselves. For whatever reason, I always had that drive to do something. And trust me, Joe, it took me a longer, longer than it should have if I had some guidance. But being that my father wasn't around and I didn't really have guidance for my mother, I soaked in the works of past successful people. Uh, Earl Nightingale, Napoleon Hill, Andrew Gar Carnegie. I view these individuals as my true fathers. So what I started doing was I started reading their books on a daily basis. You know, Og Mandino, the greatest salesman of the world. That's the best thing I could have done, being that I didn't really have guidance there. So I just soaked myself into the works of individuals that were giving me that correct mindset. And then from there, I spent, you know, my, my teenage years as a victim, just like my mom, Got my head out of my butt when I was in the 20s, became Mr. Angry Pants, that if you looked at me the wrong way, I wanted to rip your head off, right? And then as I reached my late 20s, and after a few years in finance, uh, I started realizing, and I looked in the mirror, mirror, not metaphorically, not literally, but I looked in the mirror and I said, you know what? You weren't dealt a good hand, but number one, there's plenty of people that are have it worse than you. To the average American, yeah, you didn't have a good, but you know what? Who cares? Just own your own destiny and don't focus on the past. Focus on now and focus when you, you know, on, the, on your future. So from there, I made it an effort to only let what these individuals, these men um, had to say seep into my mind. And I really started owning my, up to my, what I was doing and changing my mindset and just focusing on everything good in life, being grateful for what I have and focusing on conquering and everything positive. And that's really the philosophy and the culture that I have with the Spaventa Group. Every single day, I personally send out uh, my entire workforce a motivational quote. Every single day at 9.30 Eastern, I have a 15 minute meeting led by me on mindset, how to think every day and everything like that. And yeah, that's really shaped who I am today is, and it's unfortunate because we live in a negative world, right? Everybody's just focusing on what goes wrong. You know, the car broke down, this happened, but uh, I, I don't know if there's scientific fact to it, but it's crazy how one negative thought leads to another, then all of a sudden you're bringing on those negative thoughts. So, so yeah, that's, that's the differentiator is 
my mindset and how I just became positive and said, you know what, let's forget everything in the past. Let's focus on the now. And uh, I will have to say this too. One thought that comes directly from me is the realization that every time that I do a podcast like this, where I get a little nervous, I do what helps cool me off or the conference that I was going to do in Hawaii or whatever it is, is one day we're going to be dead and none of this is going to matter. <laughs> I, I, I always say that to myself too, man. I, you know, I'm like, you know, it, it's all just like a, a blip or a blink, you know, it, it, we're not going to mean anything when we die. It's, uh, everything in between is just noise. Joe, I'm, I'm 35. I don't know how old you are. Statistically speaking, I'm nearly halfway done with my life. Uh, you can't let anything like this, as long as, don't care what people think, as long as nobody's judging your character. Obviously, I don't want anybody to judge my character. I don't want anybody thinking, oh, yeah, he's a fraud, he's a scum. I don't want any of that. But if you don't like the tattoos that I have, you know, or you don't like my, you know, shaved head or something like that, I don't know. You don't like the blazer I'm wearing, whatever, whatever, pal. I don't know what to tell you. But that's one thing that has scared me is the fact that one day we're going to be dead, none of this is going to matter. And I don't want to be the 80-something-year-old guy on my deathbed saying, what it could have, should have. So I just look to fill my life with positivity. It's not easy. You're going to have your days where you're just angry and nothing's going right. But the key is, if you have one of those days, my advice to everybody listening, go to sleep. Make sure you wake up the next day with a clean slate because you never want one negative day to turn into a negative week, to turn into a negative month, to turn into a negative year, to turn into a negative life. So we're, we're focused on mindset. And how do you think we bring that to a lot more of the youth that's in this world? Yeah, that's that's something I am going to be working on. Uh, I, I, I do my best to, to give back. You know, when I started making money, instead of selling my car, I donated it to somebody in need. Uh, I work with my, my my cousin, who's more like a brother to me. His brother-in-law works with an outreach out here on Long Island, helping people that are needy. So every year I give gifts and everything, and I offer the type of guidance. But I, I think there's, there's unfortunately, there's kids out there that don't have that guidance, that le- seek that guidance to more nefarious ways. You know, whether it's the neighborhood drug dealer or somebody else or whoever they're seeing, you know, Pony Montana from Scarface or whatever it is. So I, I think that it's really not a government approach. I think it's a more local approach. So if you could, you know, anybody who's listening out there, if you could create something locally or something along those lines to, you know, give these people guidance in a way, uh, I think it helps a lot. Eventually with the Spaventa Group, what we do want to do is create a program to help underprivileged kids, regardless of skin color or gender or anything. If you're underprivileged, if you have no guidance, perhaps we could give you a, a way of bettering your life, teaching them finance, teaching them investing, teaching them everything that it's not going to be easy. It's going to take a long time. But if we could make a difference, even, you know, if we have to go through a hundred different kids and none of them work out, but we make a difference to one, that's the one that you got to focus on. And that's the best way we could do it. I agree. Well, I appreciate sharing that with us. And what is the best way for anybody to get a hold of you or learn more about your group? Yeah, the easiest way to do it is the spaventagroup.com. Uh, I do have to remind everybody, we do have a, the website looks good, but not good enough. We have a better website. I told my web developers, no, I want something better. I want something more miraculous. I want something more sleek and sexy and loaded with content. Uh, that's going to be launched by mid-October. I could definitely uh, let you know, Joe, when the new one's out, it's going to be rich with blog articles, white papers. It's going to have an education uh, resources tab. So even investors could educate themselves. But if anybody does want to reach out to us with any questions, interested in any of the opportunities that we have, just uh, mention Joe Robert and uh, go to the spaventagroup.com. Well, I appreciate coming out today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, man. I'm hoping to do it again.